Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hi there, listeners. Welcome back to Cycling in Alignment. You came back. I'm so happy. I've been getting a lot of good feedback and I really appreciate it. Also getting some honest feedback, we'll call it, which I also appreciate. All feedback is good feedback because some opportunities are there for me to learn and some are for there, there for me to have discourse. Let's have a discourse. Today's guest is none other than the world-famous Steve Hogg. Steve is the man who taught me most of what I know about bike fitting. I went to train with him in Sydney in 2013, and I lived there basically for a month. The training is over three weeks long. So I rented an apartment in Piermont, for those of you who are familiar with Sydney. Steve's no longer in Sydney now, he's in Canberra, but at the time I got to live in Sydney and that was a really cool experience. You know, you travel the world as a bike racer and you sometimes see the inside of a velodrome and the inside of a hotel for a week. Did you go to the country or not? Arguably, sort of. But when I rented an apartment in Sydney and went to the grocery store and bought kangaroo steaks and met the people and did the things and rode my bike to and from Steve's studio every day and then got to ride on the weekends with Steve. Sometimes that involved really long bike rides and beer at the end. Um, you learn a lot more about a country. You learn about the culture. You learn about what it's like to live in that angry bees nest that is Sydney, that beautiful angry bees nest. Today, Steve's going to share many of his thoughts and philosophies on bike fitting. And if you're not familiar with Steve's methods, this will probably be a pretty good out-of-the-box thinking drill for you. And if you are, or if you've caught many of Steve's older blogs that got him a lot of attention and fame, um, he used to write for Cycling News years ago, then you'll be familiar with a lot of his lines of thought. Only now they're a bit more developed. One note Steve has a few challenges with his voice these days. Um, his voice box is, his vocal cords are starting to not function at an optimal rate. And so he does speak quite quietly. Jenna, our super editor, has done her best to increase the sound quality and will hopefully raise the levels so that we can all understand Steve and hear what he has to say because he's got a lot of interesting things to talk about. But bear with us as... His voice is perhaps not as clear as it used to be. That said, there's a lot of valuable information to be heard. So, enjoy the episode. We have winter here now in Colorado. It's a thing amongst the fires. So we're just about to enter fire season. Yeah. Fire season follows magpie season. Follows what season? Magpie season. Magpie season, yeah. Yeah, magpies in Australia are like what a, a black and white large crow looks like, and they, they're very aggro, and they swoop and attack riders. They yeah. don't like bike riders Yep. when they're nesting. So my sunglasses knocked off by one recently. Uh-huh. But I've got a friend, and I ride almost exclusively with him because he is Paul Kelly, the magpie magnet. Between the bunch, he's the only <laughs> one that gets swooped. There's two of you, he's the only one that gets swooped. <laughs> So you don't have to be Same. faster than the magpies, you just have to be faster than him. Oh, no, no, you don't have to run from him. You just ride beside him. He'll just, get swooped and I'll leave you alone. Just let For him. some reason, they're fascinated by Paul Kelly. 
Just let him get attacked. That's like my wife with bugs in the garden. She's the one who always gets bit every time. Steve Hogg, thank you very much for making time to come on my show today and share some of your experiences with my audience. Um, it's a pleasure entering Colby world. <laughs> well, it's your world. We just live in it. But uh, just to give our audience a bit of context, you're in Canberra, or is it Canberra? Tell me, tell me oh, how bad Canberra. I'm. Canberra, okay. Well, actually, I'm just over the border in New South Wales in Jerobombera. Okay. Which, if you spelt it out, would sound like Jerobombera, but locally it's pronounced Jerobombera. Okay. But, you know, culturally it's Canberra. We're closer to central Canberra than most of Canberra is. Mm. And I haven't seen you since I trained with you, which was, I believe, in 2013. No, yes, you did. What about Interbike in 2015? You're right. I totally forgot about that. Thank you. Yeah, we got the crew, the the gang back together there, the band. And we did. We we tromped around Interbike. Who was Elroy and who was Jake? <laughs> and then I missed the the reunion you guys had down there for some fun mountain biking, at which point one of our colleagues, Jerry, managed to get a stick poked straight in the eye during a mountain biking trip. That's right. And the photo looks horrendous. You know, we could not believe that his eyeball actually didn't get punctured. It's, it is pretty horrendous. Um, maybe I'll reach out to Jerry and ask if he's okay with us putting that photo in our in our drop for this pod. I don't know if people want to see that, but um, it's pretty... It's worth seeing. It's worth seeing. I, yeah, it's you know, one of those photos you don't want to see, but at the same time, you can't look away. Considering two days later, he was, all the bandages are off and he was, had to put ointment in his eye, but he could see perfectly. Pretty incredible. One of the luckiest escapes I've seen. <laughs> Especially in the land of things that want to kill you, uh, namely <laughs> Australia. And oh, that's being a bit harsh. You think so? I, maybe I'm just... Maybe I've got some sort of cultural, I've been told that too many times thing, but I mean, you guys have huntsman spiders. You've got, yeah. you can get. No, they're nothing. The funnel webs are the ones that kill you. The funnel webs? Yeah. Yeah, the most dangerous spider in the world. Now, is that the one you told me when I was there? You said if one of those spiders ever rears up on its legs and charges you, literally you told me to run. Is that a huntsman or oh, a funnel yeah. web? No, no, that's a funnel web. Yeah. yeah. Funnel webs are the most deadly spider there is, and they're aggro. Ugh. And it takes about three whacks of the shovel to kill him. Wow. <laughs> See? I know. This is what I'm talking about. Well, if you grow up in Australia, you soon learn to do things like shaking. If you've got footwear and you leave your cycling shoes in the garage, you never put them on without tapping them to, you know, in case. Because maybe if once in a lifetime a funnel web falls out of your shoe, yep. it's once in a lifetime you've saved your own life. There you go. So... That's why Australia leads the world in anti-venines because we've got so many poisonous things. See? You're kind of making my case here for me, I think. No, no, it's, it's all good. It's what you got. <laughs> Let's talk about bike stuff, Steve. Please tell us about your background, your education, your origin, and, and I'd love to hear hang the on, journey. Hang on, hang you on. Said, you said that Nathan had requested a joke. You're right. Let, you're right. Nathan did. Nathan Haas, an athlete I coach and who has worked with Steve extensively, requested that we begin the podcast with a joke. So I hope you prepared and you did your homework. No, I haven't done my homework because I don't know many cycling jokes. I'll tell you one I do know. Okay. And I'll tell you a quick story which sounds like a joke, but it's actually true. Okay. What is the difference between a good bike mechanic and a great bike mechanic? Okay. Well, a great bike mechanic will never use the mallet with the customer in the shop. <laughs> exactly. Otherwise known as get a bigger hammer. Now, the true story that sounds like a joke is I used to have a client called Westo. I won't give you his full name. He's known for and what is Westo. He's the toughest bloke with a dollar you've ever heard of or seen. 
this guy used to step out of an S-class Benz and then forget to bring his money with him to pay the nominal $2 entry fee for triathlons. That's how tight he is. <laughs> I bumped into him at Bronte Surf Club. He was propping up the bar at Bronte Surf Club one night when I had to go there and give a speech. And as soon as I saw him propping up the bar, I went over and said to the barmaid, I'll have a beer, thanks, and Westo's going to pay. He just about choked on his beer and literally ran away. <laughs> That's what it's like. Well, anyway, this particular incident happened in, I would guess, the mid-90s. Okay. He came, which is when Campag Shamal's first hit the market. Mm-hmm. Those are the uh, a heavy uh, silver aluminium deep rim, one of the first lightly spoke deep wheels out there. And they were quite popular at the time. So he rocks in the shop one day and says, Steve, come to buy some Shamals from you like he's doing me a favour. And I said, that's fine. I said, how much? And I said, 12. Oh, I can't remember the numbers. I'll make them up. So that'll be 1250 bucks, thanks. He said, but I can get them at ABC Cycles for 1200 mm-hmm. And normally I would never have a problem matching a competitor's price, but not with Westo. Wouldn't give him a dollar off because he's the most miserable person I've ever met. I said, West, there's only one thing to do then. He said, what's that? And I said, jump in your car and drive the 50Ks to yep. ABC. No, but I want to buy them from you. I said, well, you're welcome to. The price is 1250 bucks. I said, geez, you've been a bit hard on me. I might have to do travel all the way out there. And I thought it'd be entertaining to try and have a bit of a win over him. And I said, West, though, you're a businessman. What do you charge for your time? He said, $200 an hour for me and 50 bucks an hour for the employees. Mm-hmm. I said, look, it's going to take at least an hour to get to ABC through traffic and an hour back. That's 400 bucks of your time plus five bucks worth of petrol to save 50. That makes no sense to me. What do you think? He said, mate, you're a champ. Let me think about that and I'll get back to you. <laughs> so a week later, he rocks in grinning from here and he says, oh, I went out to ABC and got the wheels and I found out, I worked out how not, how not to spend any extra. And I said, how's that? He said, I went on the day off. <laughs> all right so that's that's the that's about as good a story as i've got that turns <laughs> joke i'm not the best joke that's joke a good retailer. one yeah so now, now where were we you want you want background education origin yes please all right how, how deep do you want to go uh i will let you take us down the journey and and the rabbit hole i know i i think you've got a lot all of right. fascinating details in your history so Oh, fascinating to who, perhaps. Um, anyway, not not so fascinating to me. I live it. Mm. I was born in 1956 in a small town 200 kilometres south of Sydney called Maroolan. My family had been there since the 1840s. They started the limestone mining there. They were quite wealthy, but it all went belly up in the Depression. They lost everything. So my father used to, uh, he was a limestone miner. He used to lease a quarry. One of what used to be out of the family quarries, we used to lease a quarry and he and two other blokes used to gelignite cliffs of limestone, break it up by hand with 16-pound sledgehammers, throw it in the back of a 1932 DeSoto truck, which was not road-registered and the most unroadworthy vehicle you've ever seen, to the point where the petrol pump had died about 30 years before. So they'd strapped a five-gallon kerosene tin to the roof and fed it by gravity, wow. feed into the carby in lieu of a petrol pump. And they'd burn that limestone in the lime and bag it, which is a very hard physical way to make a living. My mother was a school teacher. Now, I did well at school. I left school to become a lawyer, or well, so I thought, but I'd, I'd always been a mad football player. Football to me is rugby league, which is the most violent game in the world. Give you an idea how violent it is. Uh, they did a study a few years ago of 108 years of, of top level players. And of, of 108 years worth of players who played NRL, or, which is the top level in, in league, 
of day, all that number, 50% had played 50 games or less, which is less than two seasons worth, and 80% had played 20 games and less, which is less than one season. Choose people up. So I came to Sydney as a 16-year-old to play footy. I was close enough to six feet. I weighed in American language about 165 pounds, and I spent three years running into people who weighed between two and 300 pounds, and you can guess what happened. Mm. I broke most things that are breakable and dislocated, most things that are dislocatable. And what came out of that is at 17 years of age and with a, a left knee that I freshly ruptured PCL and MCL, I, I bought a bicycle in an attempt to self-rehab and the rest, well, that got me stuck into bikes. So I started racing bikes. Um, so where do we go from there? Well, fast forward 13 years in the interim, I've had a colourful working history, all sorts of odd jobs, everything from nightclub bouncer to bricklayer's labourer, you name it. I was pretty motivated when I was a brickies labourer. I negotiated hours with my boss where I could do twice the work and make twice the money expected of me. Mm-hmm. So I was I was trapped in... I was a paid slave. I was a very well-paid slave, though. Mm-hmm. So at age 30, I'd talk my way into a very high-paid sales job for a multinational. I was making more money than I ever dreamed of. But that allowed me to become idealistic enough to hate office politics and all the rubbish that goes with it. So... I determined to do something that would make me happy because I realised the happiest people I'd ever met were the ones who'd done, who, who, who did for a living what they would have chiefly done for a hobby. So I was racing bikes fairly seriously at the time, so I decided to open a bike shop. It was in September the 1st, 1986, with my wife. Now, we weren't a normal bike shop. We, had, we stocked kids' bikes. But in terms of adult bikes, we had a frame builder on staff. We had a frame building workshop, and all we did was build and supply custom steel frame bicycles and do mechanical work so that's where bike fitting came into it although it was never a conscious decision just a, a custom frame lens a design basis i quickly realized the shortcomings of measuring limb lengths and consulting standard tables so i started to formulate some ideas and that's where it, that's where it all went i've knew i definitely knew some of those facts about your history but i was not aware that you guys were manufacturing steel custom frames in your early days? Well, that's what we did for the first 10 years. And then okay. by 96, cast steel frames had kind of lost their gloss. Them mm-hmm. People wanted aluminium frames by that stage. So I became the Klein distributor for Australia. Okay. And then Trek, Trek bought out Klein and I lost that agency. Mm-hmm. And then I became over time the Seven distributor and also the Pisani distributor. Mm-hmm. And still am, although I'm, not, I'm semi-retired these days, so I don't push it that hard. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting how the market has changed because now we kind of have this almost polarized market where you've either got a $12,000 road bike that's completely carbon with arrow bars and every cable is integrated and it takes you half an hour to move the stem up or down five millimeters. It's a total waste of time. It's a joke. Or you've got this boutique custom market on the other side, which has resurged, right? I mean, companies like Seven and Pisoni and, and, they're just inbound. Yeah, yeah, but they're, they're, they're drops in the ocean, like seven of the world's biggest custom mm. manufacturers. They only make about 3,000 frames a year. Right. Major, major bike companies make tens of thousands of a single model. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they're a drop in the ocean in terms of percentages. Yeah. But I, I don't like aero road frames. I think, well, look, I, I don't I don't begrudge them. If you want an aero road frame, just be prepared to pay twice as much to have the bike serviced. Mm-hmm. Agreed. The other thing is that there is no performance advantage anyway. Mm. You know, nine, I met a guy at Interbike, I can't think of his name now, but he, owned, he owns the A2 wind tunnel in North Carolina, which is open 365 days a year, 24, 
hours a day, seven days a week. And most of their business is um, was NASCAR racing. That's what you call your NASCAR racing teams trying to refine their aerodynamics. Mm-hmm. At the time, he told me he had 25 years of data. What that data showed that the frame, the contribution of the frame, the total aerodynamic drag of the bike and rider is not measurable. Mm-hmm. So vanishing small so it's true to say that this frame is 15 percent more aero than that frame if you put the frame alone in the wind tunnel but once you get a rolling road wind tunnel with rider on board legs turning around and wheels turning the frame's contribution no matter what its profile is so tiny that it cannot be independently measured yeah so all these people think they're going faster on the aero road frame they're feeling a bad case of what i'd call a new bike effect <laughs> everyone's performance ramps up when they get a new bike till they get their first scratch or yeah. 10 weeks goes by <laughs> yeah new new bike day is an important day in every cyclist's uh annual plan i suppose yeah. if you buy a new bike anyway, we're getting off track here i've got this list of questions you've got here please give us about your background where you grew up where you studied and how you inspired to become a bike fitter yes i didn't study anything other than high school i was ready to go to uni to become a lawyer but as i say i opted for football which turned out to be a bit of a dead end and gave me injuries i, st- I still affect me to this day but it taught me a few lessons and i don't regret a moment of it bike fitter there was never a conscious decision i fitted informally till from 86 to 96 and by 96 i could see that the early days you see australians are early adopters of technology by 96 50 percent of the australian bike dollar was spent offline and offshore online offshore i should say and the australian australian trade here wholesale industry very slow to react they maintain by world standards, very high margins. Because Australia is a small population where the other end of the world from most the cycling population and we're out of sync in terms of the seasons. So we've got more wholesalers per capita than anyone else, all mainly small operators who need high margins to survive. Those margins were maintained. So all it did was we, we spent 10 years in the industry encouraging people to buy offshore online. So that was hurting my biz by that stage. So I thought, all right, really enjoying the biomechanical side of things i'm going to get into bike fitting although i didn't call it bike fitting at the time i didn't know the word existed i call it rider positioning because <laughs> i've never been exposed to anything else because i didn't use the internet up to 2006 mm-hmm. so i wasn't aware there was a i'd never met anyone out there by 96 after 10 years of fitting probably several hundred people a year i'd never met anyone who did that what i was doing for a living at that time <laughs> In fact, the first time I met another bike fitter was 2009, an interbike. Wow. Rider positioning is arguably a better term, I, th- I would say, but anyway. Oh, bike fitting rolls off the tongue a little, little better. <laughs> How long have you been fitting? Well, informally from 86 to 96 and formally from 96 onwards. In 96, I didn't close the shop. I just decided we were going to become a bike fitting business rather than a bike retailing business. Mm-hmm. And since then, uh, up till three and a half years, three and a half years ago, I moved to Canberra to attempt to retire and failed at that. So these days I work 10, 15 hours a week. I see three new clients a week and probably a similar number of repeat clients. But um, mm-hmm. for that 20 years, I performed an average of, I saw an average of 600 to 800 clients a year, at least half of those for complete fits. Mm. And the rest were returning customers for a new pair of shoes or a new bike or had developed a tw- an injury over time or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, I've seen a lot of people. Yes. And you said, how many bike fits have you performed? I've got no idea. I used to give everyone a hard copy folder with their number on the front, and I got to 10,000 
oh, probably 10 years ago and I just stopped bothering after that because mm-hmm. I changed everything to soft copy and I started numbering things. But what's the point of counting? It doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. And some people do a lot of fits and repeat the same mistakes constantly. Other people don't do very many at all and get pl- and apply themselves to the job and do the task well. So numbers don't really matter. It's the result that matters. Agreed. Now, the next question was, who have you studied who has influenced your fit philosophies? Nobody. Well, what I meant by that was, I, I'm not necessarily thinking you're fitting, sorry, I should have worded the question more clearly. Not necessarily other fitters per se, but who or what have you studied that have influenced your, your fit philosophies? That would be a broader way to say nothing, it. Nothing, even then, nothing at all. I tend to like to be the kind of, I've got the kind of mindset, I like to work things out myself from first principles. Then sometimes I go looking for reading material to fill in some of the gaps or flesh out the little insights I've gained myself. But I like to start from first principles. Okay. See, when I started, I'd been a bit of an athlete, and I'd read, I read, I read a lot, as you know, mm. about just about every kind of subject under the sun. I'm an insomniac, so I got to fill 20 hours a day somehow, and I've been a bookworm since the age of three. So um, I read widely, and I'm interested in a lot of things, and I've got a retentive memory for anything that interests me. For anything that doesn't interest me, I couldn't remember it five seconds later. So I've read a lot of things, and when I first started fitting people, I thought, well, I've got to have some underlying basis on which to operate here. And it can be summed up in the term that's still our email tagline, which is comfort plus efficiency equals performance. Now, my principles were that simple at the time. I just wanted to have people that are comfortable with good control of movements and have them breathe well. Mm-hmm. To me, that was the basis. That was That's how primitive it was. And occasionally, I'll see someone I fitted 30 years ago, and, well, I can do a much better job now. I'm surprised how well I did at the time. Mm-hmm. So I haven't actually studied anything in relation. Oh, well, informally, yeah, I've self-educated to a fairly high level about a lot of so, different subjects and influences. Mm-hmm. um I've something here. I've, I've got something here in uh, in uh, dot form that I wrote for Jerry. Jerry asked me to contribute something to a, a website he's part of. And he asked me to, and I call it the keys to bike fitting. It's very simple and basic. Mm-hmm. Firstly, the central nervous system controls every aspect of human function. Secondly, in any athletic activity, the central nervous system's three fundamental priorities are, in descending order of importance, number one, breathing number two, posture, number three, movement. Third point is every measure taken or intervention made during a bike fitting must be considered in relation to those three priorities and and the order in which they are prioritised. Fourthly is the desired outcome of a fitting is an efficient athlete and an efficiently functioning central nervous system is fundamental. Fifth, the key determinants of central nervous system efficiency are posture, alignment and functional symmetry. Six, the points above are all information required for a thoughtful fitter to base their fitting practices on. Everything else is a detail. I, and that, that's, that's my philosophy, if you want one, for what it's worth. Mm. Everyone's hung up on biomechanics in the fitting industry, you know, statistical norms and joint angles, which is meaningless for several reasons. Firstly, the biomechanics itself is the product of central nervous system function. So why not get the central nervous system firing on all eight cylinders as a first principle? Secondly, all these systems out there are based on statistical norms or averages. Now, statistics are invariably accurate when applied to individual large populations. They're equally invariably inaccurate when applied to individuals. Mm-hmm. They're accurate. We'd all be running around one testicle and one ovary because that's the average for the for the world's population. <laughs> good, Good example. 
And I mean, that's being fun trying to be, that's in a poor attempt at humour. But look, <laughs> I, last October I had to give an address in uh, in Asia to a group of bike fitters over there, most of whom used, uh, I won't name them, but Boulder developed uh, imaging technology, 48 of the 50, and I was telling them they were barking up the wrong tree. And I, I said, all right. And I, I just, and I said, okay, listen to this then. And I asked them, you know, you agree it's all based on statistics and average? Yeah, 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 we all agree. I said, okay, I've done my research. Who amongst you here live in Thailand, which is only about 10 of them? I said, okay. Who amongst you here lives in a household of 2.67 people? Mm-hmm. No one. Who amongst you here owns 0.76 of a motor vehicle? No one. Mm-hmm. And the third one, who amongst you here has one testicle and one ovary? No one. Well, none of you are average. So how can you use that system? I mean, that's, again, being a smart ass, but that's pretty right. Systems never work for everyone most of the time for several reasons. One, they don't tell you very much. And two, they don't, they don't, there's no, there's no, uh, how can I put it, they don't, if you show up with the money, you get the system. There's no entry requirement. There's no exam. Right. Which means you can call yourself a bike fitter just by buying the equipment and doing a three-day course. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. the biggest problem in bike fitting currently. I would agree. There's no standard for the quality of work for most of these trainings. There's no guarantee that the person has gone through, even assuming the philosophy of whatever, whatever class they're taking or whatever system of education they're buying into is correct. That aside, there's no guarantee that the student is proficient in that technology, in administering that technology or applying those 100%. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, if you want, if you want to respect and credibility as a job or a profession, you've got to set some standards, and there are no standards mm-hmm. because because bike fitting is largely driven by large corporates associated with bike companies mm-hmm. who who want to make money. That's their first and first and only overriding concern, and I can understand why. Because if you're a, look, how can I put this? If you're a bike manufacturer, standardizing as many processes as possible is desirable from a point, it's not only desirable, it's necessary to keep costs down. But training bike fitters or so-called bike fitters in three-day courses, no entry requirement, no exam, spitting them out and saying you're a bike fitter, go and use this gear, which they cling to at the, often at the, often to the uh, in opposition of all common sense because it's all they know. Mm-hmm. All they know is what they learn and what their screen tells them, which, frankly, as you know, isn't very much at all anyway. Mm. They, go, they might mark to death about how we can see more than a human eye. That's bullshit. Mm. The best tool they've ever devised for assessing a human being's function on the bike is another human being. Agreed. Anyway, sorry, where are we up to? I'm getting distracted here and on my high horse, which mm-hmm. isn't hard. Well, so you've outlined some of your, your philosophies. That document that you sent to Jerry was very helpful um, as a big picture idea of where you're coming from in bike fit. So I guess the next question on our list would be, what are the biggest priorities for you when performing a bike fit? You've sort of answered that. You prioritize the nervous system, the function of the nervous system of the rider. And how do you well, prioritize controls it? Well, if you get the nervous system firing properly, mm-hmm. this probably needs a bit of explanation. People are going to say, well, how do I, my nervous system fires properly? Well, no, it doesn't. We have a sense called proprio, and I'm telling you, you know this, Colby, so I'm trying, I'll break this down a bit for your listeners because I know you're on top of this. Thank you. Proprioception is given to the name, is the name given to our unconscious awareness of our body position in space. Now, I use the term a bit more specifically than most. 
I look at proprioception as the cerebellum's unconscious awareness of the body position in space. The cerebellum is the part of the brain responsible for integrating information sourced from all over the body to spit out motor patterns, which are muscle firing sequences to allow us to efficiently perform voluntary and involuntary movements. Cerebellum doesn't initiate movement. The motor cortex, which is an area of the brain which determines muscle, which is responsible for movement, notifies the cerebellum of the intention to move. The cerebellum, then quick as a flash, says, all right, if you're going to walk, if you fire these muscles in, in this sequence and switch these other ones off and then switch those ones off and the other ones back on, you can walk. That's how we function. Now, that sounds like a great system. It is. But the potential fly in the ointment is of the three billion signals that arrive at the cerebellum from all over the body every second, conveying information about load being experienced, relationship to gravity and, and, um, and uh, position in space. Human cerebellum can only process 2,000. Let to put that in numbers. That is, That means that every single second the cerebellum is ignoring 99.99997% of the total information flow. And that's not a flaw. It might seem like a flaw. It's not. It's a necessity. Because if we gave equal unconscious waiting to all stimuli, we'd never be able to get anything done. We'd be so overwhelmed with stimuli, our eyes would be flashing and we'd be just going reset, reset, reset all the time and never be able, not be able to move at all. Mm. Evolutionary pressures have dictated a very simple hierarchy as to of, 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 of um, priorities as to what the cerebellum prioritizes for processing versus the vast amount of information it routinely ignores. Those priorities are, can be conveyed in two words, force and change. The generation of force is important because any time we exert ourselves, cerebral, that's taken as a priority task. And the, the best example being if you're running for your life or fighting for your life, you're literally betting your life you're going to coordinate those actions as well as you can. Mm -hmm. You'll do your utmost because survival is the fundamental imperative of all living creatures and compared to which every other consideration is secondary. So there's clear survival value in, in prioritizing any exertion of force. Change is important because if conditions change around your body, like you step on something sharp or touch something hot or cold, or you're buffeted by a strong wind while you're walking along the edge of a cliff or something like that, there's clear survival value in prioritizing change. And within the category of force, force generated by the pelvis and legs is given higher processing priority than force generated above the top of the pelvis. And again, there's an evolutionary imperative at work. Given that we're upright, our evolutionary path has been to develop to become upright bipedal creatures and our major modes of unassisted locomotion around the planet are walking and running, it makes no evolutionary sense at all if while you're walking around or running at any time and concurrently at the same time nodding your head, waving your arms or bending at the waist, if you, if you also collapse the hips, knees and ankles at the same time as while you're doing that, which is the risk we run if upper and lower bodies are given equal priority. So because the lower body effectively is the postural foundation allows us to maintain an upright position, it's given higher priority. Now, thing is, we're all riddled with these neurological deficits. And these arise throughout our lives and they're triggered by blows, injuries, surgeries, diseases, food allergies, a million and one things. And we don't have a natural reset mechanism. There's never been any evolution incentive to develop one. And I'll explain that. Given that we produce one and a half million times more information than the poor old cerebellum can ever process at any one time, let's assume that Colby Pierce, by the time he gets to age 40, 20% dropped out. And I don't know what it is, I'm making up the number. Mm -hmm. Well, your nervous system wouldn't give a damn, Colby, because instead of having 1.5 million times too much neural information to deal with, you've got 1.2 million.
still eat, breathe and have sex, which is all that's necessary from a genetic point of view to pass your genes on. So where's the incentive to develop a reset mechanism? So the first thing I do with a client is reset the entire mechanism so that they're, they're dealing with the greatest flow, clarity of flow of information all over the body, which means they can globally coordinate any f future physical action, including riding a bike with a heightened level of, of efficiency. You know, why don't we know we've got these deficits? We're all riddled with them and they, they occur regularly and routinely. We don't know because human central nervous systems are incredibly adept at compensating for, these, for this lack of neural information when something's dropped out. Like if you break a bone, that the injury, the area around that bone will be in deficit at some level after that. So, um, sorry, I've lost the thread here. Where was I? Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, each, 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 each deficit, each dropout is presents a challenge to our position in space, which will be met by an immediate compensated response. The problem is we compensate amazingly well, but nothing happens for nothing. There's five basic problems with the need to compensate. Firstly, it doesn't solve the problem. Compensated responses work by shifting the load somewhere else. And when we develop a chronic ache or pain, that's a signal that the nervous system has exhausted the possibility of further shifting the load. Secondly, your nervous system is dumb. We're not talking about the thinking apparatus. We don't really want to steer clear of that because that's ruled by bluster, bullshit and self-delusion in all of us anyway. We're talking about the lower order stuff that respond, merely responds to stimuli. But it's, it has no long-term predictive foresight, which means that today's compensatory inverted comma solution typically will mean it's next week, next month, or next year's larger, more extensive problem. Thirdly, all compensatory responses of their very nature increase asymmetry. And as cycling is a symmetrical activity conducted by asymmetric humans, implications for performance are obvious. Mm -hmm. Fourthly, every challenge to your position in space, every compensatory response is yet another challenge to your position in space to be met by a subcompensation, which in turn is met with a sub, 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 sub at infinitum. So any challenge to your position in space triggers a cascade of small and small challenges. And most importantly of all, what your body does as your central nervous system instructs, your central nervous system learns what your body does. So you walk around bent and twisted like Quasimodo for long enough, that becomes your normal and what you revert to under pressure. Mm -hmm. Now, typically, I spend three to four hours fitting people, and the first half of that is getting rid of all that crap and resetting the mechanism. So when they get on the bike, all I've got to deal with is their positional issues, not their body issues. Mm -hmm. So I've sorted out everything that's fixable, which is far more than people generally realise. Mm -hmm. So what we're talking about is, uh, to rewind for a moment, just to talk about the central nervous system and how it performs basic actions like running and walking, what you're talking about is a movement engram, correct? Correct. And so... And there's informational input. Mm -hmm. There's an informational input and there's a voluntary or involuntary wish to perform an action. Like when you accelerate hard in a bunch or break or corner, mm -hmm. they are conscious thoughts that trigger that sequence. But you're not thinking, I'm going to contract this muscle and relax this muscle. Right. You think I'm going to break or corner. Mm -hmm. And the cerebellum is the part of the body that supplies the information to, to spit out that muscle firing sequence to allow that to happen. Because mm -hmm. the cerebellum is interesting. It's, it's several things worth knowing about it. Firstly, it's got more neural connections to the body than the rest of the brain put together, more than 200 million. Secondly, it can be consciously overridden, but it cannot be consciously controlled. I'm just trying to give you an example. Okay. You've seen those old movies of jackbooted stormtroopers in the 1930s? Mm-hmm. You can, you can choose to walk down the street stiff-legged like that if you wish. Mm -hmm. 
that's fine. That's conscious overriding. But if you're distracted by a flash car or a pretty girl or something or a loud noise, you're likely to revert to a much more normal, unconsciously controlled walking gait because conscious overriding has ceased and unconscious control has resumed normal service. Mm-hmm. That's how it works. So if I throw something at you, you're going to duck. And that, that action of ducking will arise before there's any intention to move in the motor cortex because cerebellum is so wired up, we can't afford to send information back and forth between the various parts of our brain. The moment your eyes see that thing coming at you, you'll make an involuntary movement, which the cerebellum is hardwired to accept and, and perform very quickly. Mm-hmm. Which goes back to your comment about 99% of all input is ignored, but we that's why we monitor so many signals because we're constantly the reticular activating system is constantly monitoring the environment for stress and threat you've got you've got it you've got it now for instance can you feel your shoulder no you can't touch it and you can when you put a shirt on you feel it for 10 seconds then you cease to feel it Mm -hmm. can you feel your forehead ask anyone out there can you feel your forehead touch it and you'll feel it because we cannot monitor everything so it takes an additional stimulus applied to most parts of the body before at the unconscious level or the conscious level become fully aware of it Mm -hmm. And the same thing at the unconscious level. So I've worked out the the, cere- the the central nervous system's priorities as far as movement goes, and I act on those. And that's the basis that I work my fitting techniques around. Mm. Get all that system working properly. Because you can only do well repeatably what you can do unconsciously without thinking. Conscious thought can work, but only while conscious thought's on the job. I defy anyone to try and consciously control their pedaling technique while they're at 95% heart rate riding up a steep hill. Right. Right. This is why if you're going to impact change in pedaling technique, you've got to do it at lower intensities first, right? You've got it. You've got it. Yeah. I don't, I'll stop short of saying you can't change your pedaling technique. Mm. I'll just say most conscious efforts to do so are doomed from the start because people try and do it consciously all the time and they can't. You've got to do it under low intensity. Mm -hmm. That's why too, when you fit someone, the best advice you can give them once you've made changes for the first three weeks, just ride around and cruise, smell the roses, no... PB efforts, no steep hills, no fast bunches. Right. Because we've, when you change someone's position, you're stimulating a process of adaptation. There's no way that process is complete after a three or four hour bike fit. And empirically, I find it takes about three weeks of three to four rides a week minimum mm-hmm. at low intensity to break down old motor patterns and learn new ones. And it's a fairly painless process if you do it at low intensity because you're not under pressure. Because if you ride hard within that period, you're likely to you feel weak and powerless. Because and you are, because you're firing everything out of sync. You're right. still trying to use the old motor pattern, but for a new position with different relationships and parameters. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, of course, that's an important um, discussion to have with any client when I'm working with them in a bike fit. Because, and and that can present challenges in the season, of course. Because if you're, you know, in a normal season, in July or August, if you fit someone, ostensibly they could be racing the next weekend, but I have to give them my well, advice. I always have that. I always have that conversation with people beforehand. Before, yeah. Well, and often, often, particularly with Ironman triathletes, they set themselves a position that's not sustainable. They realise four weeks out from a race they're going to struggle. Mm. They ring me out and say, "Fix me, please." And I say, "Well, when are you racing?" And then and they'll tell me, and I'll say, "Okay, well, how important is this race to you?" If they say it's important, I say, "Well, ring me after your race." Yeah. They say it's, they say I'm prepared to take it as a training exercise only. I said, "Okay, fine, come in." Right. There's a general rule: I will not touch anyone for six to eight weeks before a major event. Yeah, because other, otherwise you're, you're putting in the situation where they're going to crash through or crash potentially. Mm-hmm. Some people have blinders, some people don't, and I don't want to be the guy that changed their position when they 
they, they're looking for someone to blame when all their mates are going, well, gee, you didn't go very well. Why is that? Right. Right. Okay. So tell us a bit about the technology you do use during your fitting. I know you've, you're still on that old, is it a Citus Italian trainer that you use? That's kind of. No, no, Sedia. No, no, they've died. It's it's pity, you finally it. killed it. Yes. And I got another one. I killed it too. And they no longer make them. Ah. They were brilliant. 30 kilo flywheel. Yep. Um, they would, the bike is held in by the rear wheel in like an A-frame trainer, but it's free to move 15 degrees either side of vertical. The right has to make an unconscious effort to hold it up. Mm-hmm. Had that elevator, so when you hit a hill, the front of the bike rose according to the hill as the resistance increased. So yep. it's brilliant. Yeah. Now, these days I've gone real basic. I'm just using a, uh, what is it, a Kurt Kinetic, um, oh, what are they, road machine, I think they're called. Yeah. Not the rock and not, the rock and roll. No, one, not the, the rock and roll. Railer. I don't have I don't have the room for one now. Okay. Yeah. Oh, and and funnily enough, that's been a bit of a progression for me because for years and years I've always told everyone you need a trainer that doesn't hold the bike dead upright. Mm-hmm. Because one, it heightens asymmetries of the rider, and two, riding a bike you ride you're riding an unstable mechanism. What's the point of fitting someone when you want a stable mechanism? Right. Which is my big whinge against fitting bikes. Well, look, without trying to be smart or anything i'm not i've got to the point where it doesn't matter what trainer i put someone i'll get the job done yeah i chose that that particular trainer because it'll fit everything from a 650c wheel to a 29 by 2.545 wheel mm. except for those bikes with rat axles where we still have to replace the derailleur handle and get it in the in the trainer no, well i've got all the various yeah. axle project axles so i've got to become fairly well practiced at that me too but it's still a hassle that i would prefer well i'll tell you know why they exist though don't you Mm. No, no manaframe manufacturer will tell you, but no carbon bike manufacturer really wants you to put your bike on a trainer. On a trainer, right? Well, it's not they made. They'll, they'll tell you that in confidence. They won't say that publicly. Yeah, it's not made to hold that so, to generate. It's the frames aren't engineered to handle that force of being locked at the rear axle. That's not what it's made for, right? Of course, and they could be, but then they'd have to be heavier. And seen as an arms race to have the world's lightest frame, right? Yeah, it could easily. It could be engineered to be in just about anything, with especially with carbon composites. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, that's another whinge of mine about bikes in general. Mm. I was riding in a bunch a while back, and there's a guy that lives on the on the route, and he doesn't meet us at the meeting point. He meets us two kilometres after, because outside the front of his house. He waits, he sees, comes along, he jumps on his bike, and joins in. Mm-hmm. This particular day, and I won't name the brand of bike, it was a typical lightweight carbon frame, high end carbon frame. He must have been late getting out of bed because as we're come, as we're a hundred yards away, we've seen him running to his front gate getting through the front gate, dumps the bite on the, the, the road, stands on the curb, tries to clip in, slips and fell on his frame, broke it. Yep. That had been a steel and aluminium or a titanium frame, he would have picked himself up and jumped aboard and nothing would have changed. Right. Husband perhaps a bit of paint off and maybe a bruise or a scrape. Mm. He broke the top tube. I had a customer a month ago with, a oh, again, a well-known American brand of bike, mm-hmm. carbon bike, high-end, lightest, supposed to be the world's lightest frame and all that rubbish. He landed up against the uh, podium I used to fit people on, which has got uh, aluminium capping on the edges. Mm-hmm. He landed up against there, luckily, and it slipped. Slipped down, didn't fall out, slipped down, slipped down the seat stay. Mm-hmm. That delaminated the side. I thought I'd just taken paint off. No, it was totally delaminated. Mm-hmm. Needed a frame. That's what we get for riding these bikes that, you know, with frames that weigh 750 or 800 grams, right? I mean, they're fragile. I remember when steel forks weighed 700 grams. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Cycling okay, tends, we'll, to, tends to attract we'll those engineering to. minds. Um, where are we up to? Basic fitting method. Yes. Okay, I'll share whatever you want. So ask questions and I'll go. Well, okay. Tell us about how you would select the most the the functional threshold power of bike fitting. I call it the saddle height. What do you, what parameters do you do you look at? Well, several. Firstly, you've got to get the rider warmed up and under reasonable load. And usually, at a glance, I can tell you this seat height's too high or too low. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the major parameter I focus on is the velocity of extension of the knee. Simplifying the pedaling action, how it works is like this. The glutes and the hammies combine to extend the hip or push the upper leg down. Same time, the quadriceps are trying to extend or straighten the knee. But the quadriceps can only contract the rate the hamstrings lengthen because they oppose each other, which means the hamstring rate of lengthening puts a break on quadricep contraction. Mm-hmm. Now, because the hamstrings are given higher importance as far as processing goes by the central nervous system, simple than the quadriceps, the the body will the nervous system will attempt to self-protect the hamstrings from over overreaching. Now, to explain that, in simple terms, you need hamstrings to stand up. You don't need quadriceps to stand up. Mm-hmm. So, hamstrings are what I call a postural muscle, which means their major function off a bike, I'm not talking cycling, their major function off a bike is to enable us to hold a position in space, standing or walking, mm-hmm. whereas your quadriceps are not necessary to stand up. They're, they're a phasic muscle group. They, their basic function is to generate power from movement. So if you have your seat height even a little too high, your, your nervous system will tend to switch off your hamstrings at the moment of overextension. That means the quadriceps rate of contraction is no longer restrained and they accelerate because they know the hamstrings aren't acting as a brake. So you'll see a, a twitch behind the back of the knee. It can mm-hmm. be subtle. It can be obvious. That, you know, it depends on how too high the person is sitting. The other thing you've got to look at, so if I see that at all, I know they're too high and act accordingly. The other thing you've got to look at is make sure both ankles are working through much the same plane of movement. If one per, if one foot is pedaling more toed in than the other, you guarantee that person's tight gastrox and soleus. Mm-hmm. So we're going to find the deficit that causes that. Well, I've usually tackled that before they get on the bike. But if I haven't, I've got to find the deficit, the neurological deficit that causes that and resolve that, get them pedaling equally. Mm-hmm. I've already made a determination about leg length before they get on the bike. So if they've got a short leg, I already know that. So I'll expect to see one leg overextending because I, I don't operate on, oh, you've got a 10 mil leg length discrepancy. We're going to pack up your shoe 10 mil. I look and see how they relate to the bike. Mm-hmm. And then I'll make a decision. Like yesterday, I had a guy who had a nine millimeter leg length discrepancy, which he's never done anything about. He only needed six millimeters under his shoe, though, because all of it was in his femur, which mm-hmm. never really pointed vertically. Mm-hmm. And so what I've noticed in my fitting is that topography of the rider the home base of the rider can play a big role in in how they perceive saddle height to be well the first th- observation i'll make is that for some reason cyclists have this weird especially men they perceive that if their saddle's not high enough well i shouldn't generalize that to men but if they perceive their saddle's not high enough somehow they're going to be giving up power it's like there's no, i don't know why bullshit. yeah no, of no, course no, it's no. bullshit but i don't know i don't understand the origin of this cultural phenomenon in cycling like, what is it about well, well, one of the truisms I'll just break in and say is small riders tend to have their seats way too high. Yeah. Most other riders have their seats too high. Mm. And the few that have them too low are usually about six foot six riding bikes that don't fit that well. Mm. They're, they're the ones that are usually too low. Yeah. But yeah, 90% of the people that walk in the door end up dropping their seat. Dropping the seat, yeah. I would agree. And 
so the two things in my mind are the three things really that I think are easy to camouflage a dead spot, which your dead spot at the bottom of the stroke is going to be much larger if your saddle's too high because you can't drive through the bottom of the stroke with a flat foot. Of course, your hamstrings, but, right? but it's camouflaged on the flat because momentum plays a large exactly. part. Or while but you're up riding a, hill, a trainer. Up a hill, yeah. up a hill around, no, but put them under big load with a 17 kilo flywheel. Mm-hmm. Like I've, I've modified my trainer to a 17 kilo flywheel. You know, it's quite smooth, but you put them under big load and it becomes painfully obvious whether mm-hmm. the seat's too high or not. Even if, you, if you're unsure, just increase the load. Yeah. Right, right. Agreed. But I think that when people ride at moderate, you know, zone two, zone three, oh, all course. the time on yeah. Swift on their trainer, then, and their saddle's too high, they may not put it together. And then they're just training bad paddle mechanics, you know, for hours and hours and hours every winter or for some people all season this year if they stayed on Swift. Well, I'm not a fan of I'm not a fan of using of using power as a as a determinant for bike fitting mm. because things change on the day. I mean, I used to have a Velotron at one stage, and I I loved the the idea I could be able to see the shape of the torque curve, not just not just the left right power balance, but the shape of the torque curve. Mm-hmm. And I thought that'd be brilliant for fitting. And you know, it wasn't because I found that most people, within the parameters of their shitty position or less shitty position, have worked out a cert- they they work at a certain level of of efficiency. I was distraught the first dozen or so people I fitted on a Velotron. I didn't. I just fitted them as I'd normally fit them. I didn't look at the, the, the power, the torque curves till afterwards, and I found they were worse. Mm-hmm. So I'd go. So I thought, oh, I can't be that bad. I've got to get them back. So I'd get them back four to six weeks later, and in every single case, they were better. Mm-hmm. So you can't use power or technology as a determinant of how well a fit, how good a fit is on the day of the fit, because you haven't allowed any time for habituation. Well, of course. Right. I mean, that makes perfect sense in the context of our conversation about the central nervous system and how it adapts to new loads and you're repatterning a movement engram, right? I'm not saying this for your benefit. I'm saying this for your, your listeners' yeah, benefit because yeah. a number, number of people say, are you going to use power to make sure I'm putting out more power? I said, power is the least important thing to worry about. That's the cake. Talk right. is the recipe. Right. Agreed. And I can make you more powerful, but I'll also make you injured in about three minutes flat. Mm-hmm. So you want the greatest level of sustainable power, and that's controlled by fluency and control of movement. Because mm-hmm. cycling is not about one pedal stroke, it's about thousands. Right, right. Fluency, supple muscle. So, so control of movement is everything. Yeah. And as I say, I've, I measure everything against the nervous system's three priorities. First thing is breathing. Second thing is stability of posture. Third thing is movement, because you can't move till you can hold a position. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't you can't walk before you can stand up without falling over. That's another thing too. That's why we've got to have relaxed upper bodies on a bike. Mm. It's the muscles that we breathe with are given higher processing priority than any others. If you're using and those muscles have several several potential other jobs they can do. There's twenty odd muscles used in breathing, eighteen of which have postural implications. By that I mean they can be used to breathe with which means they need to be able to relax. They can be used to resist pedaling forces to bear weight and to stabilize with, which mm-hmm. means they have to carry tension, mm-hmm. which limits their ability to breathe. And no one's going to suffocate, but I invite anyone out there listening to this just to do this little test. Just drop your arms by your sides, relax, and take the deepest breath you can. You know, bend your arms, bend your elbows to 90 degrees, tense everything you've got in the upper body and try and take a deep breath. You'll find you can't. You know, that's not what's happening on a bike, but at some level that is always what's happening on a bike if you carry any unnecessary tension, mm-hmm. which is in part, part related to the rider's functionality and in, part, in large part related to their position on the bike. Mm-hmm. 
So, Steve, tell us about some of the most common syndromes and dysfunctions you see in your athletes who walk through the door. I mean, you've already said that. On the bark or off the bark? Um, well, I'd like to hear both if we've got time, if you don't mind. All right, off, off the bark. I can't remember the last time I didn't have, have a client with a, a pelvic obliquity, like a lateral pelvic misalignment. Mm -hmm. That seems to be almost universal. Generally poo-pooed by the structural health professions. I've been told by physios, chiros, and so on. Who cares? Everyone's got one. Well, because everyone's got one is why we should care. Because nothing affects global function as much as a lateral pelvic tilt. If you, if you don't, in the absence of a leg length discrepancy, if your pelvis is tilted laterally, each hip, knee, and ankle works through a different plane of movement. Each leg reaches a different distance to the floor. Foot morphology changes because they're loaded differently. A chain of muscle imbalances is created all the way up the spine. Shoulder heights alter, head carriage alters, all because the pelvis is tilted. So that's the most common one. The second most common one is having either one or both ilia rotated forward or back, mm -hmm. which compromises the function of one, one sacroiliac joint more than the other usually. So first thing I do, if someone tells me, like, oh, as you know, I've got a few cute tricks that can fix just about anything. But uh, if someone tells me they've got a sore thumb, the first thing I do is look at their pelvis. <laughs> That's how fundamental it is. Always start with the pelvis because it's so fundamental. Um, no, I'm deadly serious. Are you laughing? I'm deadly serious. No, I know, I know. It's just a perfect well, I, I got to work yesterday. See, the, I, I've come to an arrangement with the, world, the biggest bike shop in Australia, perhaps the world for all I know. It's, the, the scale of this place is industrial. It sells twelve to 15,000 bikes a year, turns over tens of millions of dollars, has wow. 60 staff. Hmm. And I've come to an arrangement with them where they just give me the space and I come and go as I please. And I've got this little office with glass walls right next to the cafe and the shop and fronting all the sales floor. Mm -hmm. And when I got to work yesterday, one of the waitresses said, oh, Steve, you must help me, you must help me. I said, what's that? And she, she's, she, I don't know how she did it making coffees yesterday. She was run off her feet and she'd hammered her on the nerve. Huh. And, I, and she said, I can't work, I can't make a coffee, can you fix it? And I said, oh, you probably come and have a go. I'll have a go. And then I started checking her pelvis. I said, it's, no, it's my hand and my hand. I said, shut up. I've got to do things properly. We're going to start with your pelvis. <laughs> so the long, long and the short of it is 10 minutes later, there's no pain, but then she walked out with a square pelvis. <laughs> Probably for the first time in a million years. In many years. There you go. Yeah. Okay. And what about on the bike? What do we see? What, what are the most common dysfunctions you see on the bike? Uh, one, un one unstable hip. We all see the same. One hip that drops or rotates forward. Yeah. And what, now, what now percentage are you uh, saying is right versus left? Oh, mostly a right. I'd say 90 plus percent right, less than 10 percent left. Okay. That's the same with everything. Most people need more wedges under their right foot than their left foot. It's yeah. part of the human condition. Mm. See, un at the unconscious level, subject to any challenge into our position in space, we all make an unconscious decision to favor one side over the other. I don't know why, it's just part of the human condition. For reasons that I've never quite fleshed out, most people, even if they're left-handed and left-footed, favor and protect their right side on a bike and pay a cost on the left. A small percentage go the other way, and it doesn't, again, it doesn't matter whether they're left-handed or left-footed or right-handed or right-footed. Mm -hmm. That's absent of other... Well, yesterday was a cracker, this guy with a short leg. He had a short left leg. Now, I do a test to determine whether one cerebellar hemisphere dominates the other in matters of motor control. Blindfolded stepping test, you know the one I mean? Mm -hmm. For the listeners, basically, succinctly, I, I put some earmuffs on someone so they can't hear them. I blindfold them, ask them to close their eyes underneath the blindfold, put one hand on, the, on the each opposite shoulder, just start marching on the spot, and I keep them there for 60 seconds. Now, everyone creeps forward because you can't spend a lifetime equating the walking action with 
with stepping action with walking without creeping forward. There's no problem. That one keys the direction. Mm -hmm. If you turn more than 45 degrees towards one side or the other, you have a, a neuro, inherent neurological bias. There's a million reasons that can happen. I don't want to speculate in any particular case, but it happens. And this guy turned 180 degrees in 60 seconds to the left. Mm. I mean, his right leg was taking bigger steps, but he's got a short left leg. You'd think he'd be favoring his left leg. Mm. Anyway, I got him in there on the bike. And the thing, you know, he'd be dropping his right hip. No wonder he's having problems on the left side. No, he's dropping his left hip because it's a shorter leg. Once I shimmed up the left hip and all that, he started dropping the right one. Because <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the, what I'm saying there is he had that inherent neurological bias right. for who knows what reason, which was masked by the fact he had a short leg, which he was trying to protect by dropping it. Right, right. Once I sorted that out, once I compensated over that, he started dropping the right hip. Mm. And, I tr and I tracked that to a year. He had a genuine drop first round on that foot. And the other thing, I've made some real headway in the last couple of years, which I need to talk to you and the guys about. I can fix almost any dropping hip now. Hmm. When all else fails, you look at the, you look at the psoas, the uh, piriformis, and the rectus femoris. Those same three always seem to be in deficit. Okay. On the, on the side of the drop or on the other side? On the side of the hip drop. Yeah, yeah. That's once you take away the normal stuff. You know, like, yeah. so if, some, if someone has, let's say, if someone's dropping their right hip, and they have their right ilium rotated anteriorly, which is the most common way right ones go. Mm -hmm. That means the 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 ischium is further back on the seat, so they'll, so they'll twist forward to try and fill. When, when what I'm saying is, when they fill even on the seat, they're having to twist their pelvis to the right to do it. Right. That's why pelvic alignment's so important on a bike. Mm. Well, off the bike for that matter, but doubly so on a bike because we have a lower tolerance for our asymmetries on a bike because mm. we're linked to an apparatus. And so this so, is a, yeah. a great example of just how bike fitting is, well, as one of my teachers recently put it, solving the fractal. It's like you're just peeling away layers of the onion. Oh, there's, there's always another onion layer. Right. But this guy, this guy, I thought he was going to be a nightmare yesterday. He actually turned out to be, oh, apart from the fact I had to put longer pedal axles on. Mm. He turned out to be very stable on the bike by the time we finished. Yeah. Because he stood, he weighed 88 kilos, and standing on two pairs of scales, he bore 15 kilos more on his left foot than his right foot. Yeah. Which for when sure you see is, is it surprising. Yeah, yeah but you know, so it doesn't mean that, that not because it was his left leg. Some people with a short left leg will bear more weight in their right leg. The interesting thing was pelvically, even though he had a substantially shorter left leg, he, he stood with his left left iliac crest 20 mil above his right side. The mm -hmm. short side of the pelvis was higher than the long side. Mm -hmm. By the time he finished, he was 10 mil higher on the right, and I worked out he had a 9 mil difference on mm -hmm. 9 mil longer right legs. So that's about right. Yeah. I gave him a, I gave him a build up for his walking shoes as well. No point just compensating on the bike because very hard to sit squarely on a bike whilst every every walking step further embeds asymmetric patterns of motion. Right. So right. I insisted anyone I put a shim under because they have a short leg, I do I tackle their walking shoes as well. Otherwise, I won't deal with them again. If they don't listen, I don't want to know about them. Mm. Well, because it, yeah. And I'm most are prepared to listen. And if in doubt, I send them for a 500 meter walk. <laughs> Typically, they feel like they're listing one way on the way out, and by the time they turn around and come back, they're convinced they're on the right track. Right. Right. So there's a, there's a car park opposite the shop that I can see out the window, and there's a big sign up there called, it says Dirty Janes, which is the name of a cafe, and I say, walk to that sign and back, if you doubt me. And by yeah. the time they come back, there's no doubt. <laughs> okay. So, so they're, the, they're the two biggest problems, or most regular problems I see on and off the bike, yeah. yeah, yeah. 
And Steve, I wonder if you could share, I know you've got some good war stories from the shop. You've already given us some great stories, but in this many years of fitting, I'd love to hear just whatever comes to mind in terms of a good story that you think the audience might like to hear about. It could be a success. Well, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what, oh, this was a success, but it was all, I'll tell you the story, make up your own mind. Okay. I had this gent, oh, this would be 20 odd years ago. He rang me up one day. And I was busy at the time. I was with a client, but I picked up the phone because no one else was answering it. We were flat out. And he started telling me about his problems. He wanted to make a booking. And 10 minutes in, I still hadn't told me what the problem was. He was giving me a breath-by-breath, second-by-second synopsis of his life for the last 10 years. And I said, look, whatever the problem is, I've seen it before. I'll fix it. Just make a booking. We'll come in. Here's my wife. She'll take the booking. Well, several weeks later, when the booking time came around, this guy walked in. And I thought, shit, I should have listened. should have listened. He, he walked in in about two-inch steps with his knees bent bobbing up and down, looking as very unstable, like he could barely stay upright. Mm-hmm. The story was this. I got him I got him down to where we used to fit people in those days, and I said, what's the story? And he told me he had been the manager of a coal mine three years before he'd been over to pick up a pen he dropped on the carpet. Something went snapping his back, and he collapsed at the legs. He could no longer use his legs. Nothing anyone could find could allow him to use his legs again. No one could find anything wrong with him, though. He'd seen neurologists, you, you name it, he'd seen everybody. No one could fix him. So he came across a physio who used to work at the AIS, who I used to have some dealings with. She used to send me any of the, She was the AIS women's physio. Mm-hmm. She's the female writers that were struggling to sort out when they had problems, and that's how I knew her. She, he, he found her of his own, off his own bat. She'd got him to the point where he could walk, but his, atrophy, his glutes and hemis were no longer existed. They were atrophied down to nothing. So he had to walk with constant tension in his quads, and he could barely manage to walk at all. Like walking 20 meters was an effort for him. Mm-hmm. So he's telling me all this, and he said, Trisha's got, got me walking again. She thinks the next step is to get me back on a bike, just on a trainer, riding at some level, and sooner or later I'll develop new neural pathways and switch my glutes and hemis back on. Because I've corresponded with people all over the net. I've seen everyone. I've done everything. I've spent tens of thousands of dollars. No one else can help me. He said, now, you come very highly recommended. What's your plan? I said, I don't have a clue. <laughs> and it's like his life was over. Yeah. I said, well, I don't have I've never heard a story like this. And it sounds like I'm in good company because no one else has either. I said, all I can do, seeing something went snapping in your lower back that no one can find out what it is, all we can do is set you up with, as you are with the world's worst back. So you had a Cannondale tri-bike at the time, one of their aluminium tri-bikes, before the slice, whatever they were called in those days, mm-hmm. with one of those forward-facing profile posts. Yep. Oh, sorry, I've got to backstep with it. This guy was the most detail-oriented person I've ever met. He's telling me about his previous years as a triathlete. He was telling me how three times a week he'd run 10 kilometers in 35 minutes, 14 seconds, plus or minus 10 seconds. Mm. It's everything is quantified, nailed in, and put in a box. Yeah. You know, his bike time for a, a 40K Olympic try was one hour, five minutes, plus or minus 15 seconds. Everything is right into the detail like you wouldn't believe. Mm-hmm. Anyway... So I had to move his seat back 109 mil. I think he was he had his seat about 30 mil in front of the bottom bracket, and I moved it about 80 mil behind or something like that. Yep. He said, what's this for? And I said, and I put some mountain bike handlebars on and, a, and a, one of those 45-degree upturned stems. He said, what's this about? I'm a triathlete. I said, no, you used to be a triathlete. We're trying to rehabilitate you back into becoming one. Right. In the meantime, no pressure on your spine at all. I want you bog upright, standing you know, with arms up here, pedaling away at whatever level you can just to redevelop, open and reopen these neural pathways you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. So he left fairly happy with the, with the way I was trying to do things. 
And I said, look, if you come good, come back and I'll put all your aero bars and all your try stuff back on. So he left seemingly happy. Well, about 10 days later, I got a phone call. And he's crying his heart out. He's saying, I th- you know, thank you. I thank God the day we met. I'm cured. I'm totally cured. Now it all you. And this is through tears. I'm thinking, no, this sounds too good. I'm not that good. <laughs> <laughs> I asked him what I thought. I can't make the dead, dead rise. I can't make the blind see. This sounds too good. What's going on? He told me that when he got home, he'd been told to do these pelvic stabilization exercises on the trainer in the hall, which is where he had his trainer. But he found he'd seen he had a big mirror on the wall so he could see his pelvis, so he could get some feedback as to whether he was doing them properly. Mm-hmm. But he couldn't see enough of his pelvis on the trainer. So he thought, well, Steve had that big box he fits people on. I'll get a bigger box made because I'm not the most stable person. So I'll get a big box made. Uh, one just as high but much wider so I can put my bike on it and I can see my pelvis in the mirror. Mm-hmm. So that took about a week to make the, the box, get a carpenter in to make the box. So in the end, first training, attempted training ride on the box, he's gone to get on the bike. Now, bear in mind, he hasn't been on the bike before since I've changed the position. And he used to get it, when he got on the bike and the shot was hilarious, he grabbed the bars with one hand, the seat with the other hand, levered himself up, somehow flipped his legs over the top tube and then dumped himself on the seat. Mm-hmm. Very coordinated the upper body. He's tried to do that, and being a creature of habit and detail, he's, he's reached for where the seat is. It's not, it's 109 mil further back than it was. Right. See, because he's incredibly unstable, he's toppled mm. forward, and he's thought, I'm oh, not my lightweight bike, and somehow or other he's done the full flip, and because the box was twice as wide as mine, he's done the full flip, landed on his lum- lower lumbar spine on the sharp edge of the box, oh. and the bike fell on top of him. Oh. He's lying here, and he's lying here, and in his words, in, there was 10 seconds of total agony, and a blue explosion in his brain, and he was knocked unconscious. So he's lying there with a bike on top of him, at, and at some stage his wife comes home. We're not sure. We think about 30 minutes later, we're not sure. Finds him lying there unconscious on the floor with a bike on top of him. Oh, boy. She panics and calls the ambulance. They come, check him out. He's fine, administer, administer smelling salts, bring him back around, and he can walk normally. Wow. <laughs> and he's... he's He's giving me the credit. He's insisting. <laughs> he said, oh, thank God the day we met, it was fate. It was, it was, it was meant to happen. You know, it was, it was, the world works in mysterious ways. And I said, look, if, I'm, if you're handing out the credit, I'll accept it. She hadn't even got on the damn bike. <laughs> now, the, the, now he, he explored this. He later got back to me some months later, and he later found that he'd went and seen someone with a bit of insight and found whatever the original injury was, it had caused a scar tissue to develop around a major nerve plexus in the lumbar spine. Mm-hmm. So the signals weren't getting through to the lower body in the main. That's why he couldn't walk. Mm-hmm. And what had happened when he hyperextended his lumbar spine on the edge of the box, he snapped the scar tissue, which is why it hurt like all hell. Right. And what knocked him out was all the feedback from his lower body that his brain was three years out of practice with receiving. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the best story I've got. That one's, well, there you go. So what other what other kind of stories do you want? The world does work in mysterious ways. Um, Please share one story of a fit that really impacted your fit methods or changed your trajectory in fit. Yeah, I got an interesting one. It's not a fit. Well, it was a fit, but it, he wasn't the problem. See, by mid nineties, I'd developed a bit of reputation. We had a endless queue of people wanting a bike fit, and at the same time, I was writing for the largest magazine out here. And I had a, a customer in those days. Only knew was David, small guy rode a bike, didn't know him that well, he used to come in occasionally, and he came in one day and he said, look, I'd like to talk to you about that stuff you're writing about cycling biomechanics in, uh, in Bicycling Australia, and I said, all right, what would you like to talk about? He said, well, I think you're wrong. I said, oh, what makes you say that? 
He said, well, that's my professional opinion. I said, what's your profession? He said, I'm, I'm an anatomist. And I said, how good are you? He said, I'm a professor, I'm a professor, I'm the dean of the college in New South Wales University. He said, I want to talk to you. So I don't want to talk to you because you win the argument. I said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. You're going to come in next week for a fitting. There'll be no charge. You go and ride the bike for a month, then we'll come back and talk about the rights and wrongs of the matter. Mm. So he came in, I fitted him. He came back a month later, he said, look, I've changed my mind. You're right and I'm wrong. Moreover, I think I know why. And he, he was very, his name was David Tracy, and I'm forever grateful. He, for years afterwards, he used to send me research studies that he thought were better than the usual run-of-the-mill rubbish mm-hmm. and he helped me fill in a lot of gaps mm. so that one did impact and it wasn't the fitting it was just more because i didn't want to argue with a professor anatomy on, on the basis of biomechanics or anatomy because i'm going to lose because at that stage his knowledge was well beyond mine i could probably give him a good run for his money now but i couldn't in those days right right and were you working with a lot of the proprietary methods that you work with now back then with this with this? Yeah, gentleman? but I hadn't you, de- I hadn't developed them to nearly the same level. as much, yeah. But you were still able to sway his perspective. Well, I was operating on the basis you've got to be comfortable, you've got to be efficient, you've got to be able to breathe well. Hmm. Which is when I saw a guy that was too high and was had you know a lot of tension in his arms, reaching down and out too far to the bars. I knew that I because I'd seen him ride his bike around the traps. And I knew his position wasn't wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'll let him work out the rights and wrongs of it through his own subsequent experience after I fit him. Yeah. That might change his view, and it did. And he, and he was he was grateful enough to be very helpful to me. Yeah. So I'm very lucky. I've I've fitted that many people, eminent in other areas of health professions. Some of them have taken an interest and helped me fill in a lot of gaps. Mm-hmm. Like if I if I'm genuinely in doubt about about some esoteric detail of human function or anatomy or neural function. I pretty much know who to tap to get a definitive answer. Mm. Good. Good resources so that's, to have. That's been very helpful, yeah. And that's yeah. just through fitting people over the years. Yeah. Just meeting people that way. Mm. Like one, well, an example, last year I had fitted this neurologist. And when he said he was a neurologist, and I thought, oh, you're going to find this entertaining. And he quizzed me on some of the stuff I was doing. He said it was at odds with his view. Mm-hmm. And I gave him an explanation. He said, oh, that seems to make sense. Let's continue. And at the end of it, I said, well, did I make sense? And he said, look, he said, what I've really made me realize, he said, I'm a world-class authority on six diseases of the central nervous system. He said, what you've taught me in the last four hours is I know nothing about nervous system health, only hmm. about disease. Yeah. Isn't that, I mean, that's been my experience. The deeper I dig and the more I, I educate myself about anything, it's like the sphere of knowledge gets bigger. And inside the sphere is what I will say no, air quotes, no. But every time the sphere gets bigger, the outside diameter, of course, accrues. Oh, of course, of course. More. Look, I have, a low, I have a low boredom threshold. If I wasn't learning new stuff regularly, I'd throw it in. Mm. There you but go. That's what, see, my life, I've been lucky enough to always make a living following whatever my enthusiasm was at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, bike fitting, is, that's what's this, the 35th year, and I'm still as enthused as ever. Mm. Because there's always, everyone's a puzzle, every puzzle's different, and while there are various themes, I see enough weird, strange, unusual cases that really make me think hard, but I find it hugely entertaining. Mm-hmm. So that leads me right into the next question, which what do you th- is what do you think is the most unusual, or what are some of the most unusual accommodations you've made in bike fit? The ones I've made to riders. Well, I've got a good yarn about that. I fitted a guy years ago. He was an industry rep, and he'd had polio. 
You know, the quickest, easiest way to describe this guy is imagine a person who's five foot seven on the right side and six foot tall on the left side. Wow. He's so, he's, his left, sorry, rather way around, his, his, his left side was the functional side, his right side was the dysfunctional side. Mm-hmm. He had 50 mil difference in foot length, 75 mil difference in arm length, uh, 40 or 50 mil difference in leg length, and limited ability to use his right side at all. Mm-hmm. In fact, I gave him a bit of advice that let him make a lot of money because he used to always come in and shake hands and you hold out this claw of a right hand and give me this feeble little movement handshake. Mm-hmm. I said, Nick, I'm going to make you some money. He said, how are you going to do that? And I said, well, look, you're the worst rep I've got. And he said, oh, I'm good. And I said, no, you're not. You're too damn nice. You come in here and I say, we're not buying this month. And you just shut up and eat your biscuit and cup of tea and go. I said, what you do when you come in the shop? I said, I hate shaking your hand because it's not a handshake. So what you do is said, come in next time and shake my, hold out your left hand. Mm-hmm. I said, your typical bike shop owner doesn't deal with people with disabilities as much as I do. So they're always embarrassed to be around someone with a disability. Hold out your left hand. They'll reach out with their right. They'll go, oh, shit, I've offended him. They'll reach out with their left. And I said, give them a crushing left-handed handshake because your left hand is much stronger than most people's. So then they'll always remember you and they'll take notice. You told me you did really well out of that. <laughs> So, so he asked me, what I, well, on the basis of that, he said, you seem to have more insight than most. Yeah. Can you do something about my position? Now, I'd never seen him on a bike. I didn't even know he rode a bike. It turned out he'd done three Hawaiian Ironmans. Hmm. And I, so I, got here, I said, look, come in after hours because you're not going to be a quick job and I just don't want any, any constraints on time or interruptions. So I got him on the bike and it was like watching a three-legged horse gallop. Yeah. He'd mistakenly, as you mentioned earlier, equated seat height with power. So he jacked up the seat ridiculously high. So he's dro- I measured his hip drop. He's dropping a longer left leg 40 mil and the other one nearly 100 mil. <laughs> Thrashing about on the bike and he was twisting forward massively and a hyperextending his right shoulder to try and reach the bars with his withered arm. Mm. He had an ergo power lever set up for the front derailleur and a mountain bike friction thumb shift for the rear derailleur. He said, okay, Nick, this is a bit awkward. What do you expect from this? And he said, well, he said, look, I ride 100k to Waterfall every Sunday. And he said, after 50k, I'm in serious pain. He said, it'd be nice if I could get there and back without hurting. I said, all right, let's work on that. So I said, all right, where do we start? So I wasn't advanced, as advanced in the thinking in those days, but I'm not easily deterred. So a box of odds, odds and sods cranks lying around. So he had 172 and a halves on both sides. So I put a 165 on the right side and 175 on the left side and dropped his seat 10 mil. Well, I'd already dropped a 30 mil anyway to get his left leg at a reasonable height so to drop in another 10 mil to, to, sorry 5 mil to get a longer crank on that didn't even begin to make a difference so that I'll shim up the, the right leg the shorter right leg and right foot I quickly found that any shim beyond 10 mil he couldn't control the foot on the pedal because he's very unstable he's limited ability to control his right leg it just goes around for the for the, the right yeah any more than 10 mil his foot would just rock over the pedal mm. Thinking, oh, geez, I'm stuck. And there's still barely any difference at all. Still looks like a three-legged horse. Mm. So I thought, okay. And then I had a brainwave. In the early 80s when clippers pedals, mid-80s when clippers pedals first came into market, shoes weren't drilled for them. So in those days, look pedals, which are the first ones, used to come with six-threaded eyelets. And the idea was you took your leather-soled cycling shoes to your boot maker, he drilled the holes, fitted the eyelets, and you put the cleat on and while you went and you looked pedals. Now that had long, that was 10 years in the past, but I still had a drawer full of these eyelets. So that, okay, the right foot just goes, the right leg just goes around, it doesn't contribute. So if I drill, drill, re-drill his shoes and put the cleat underneath his toes, he can reach further. Mm. I did that, I dropped the seat another 10 mil, made a difference, but not as much as I would have liked. 
So I thought, hang on, what about if I put the other cleat on the long leg in front of his heel? So I went back beyond what's now called midfoot cleat position, well beyond that. And by that stage, I that enabled me to drop the seat another 30 mil because, you know, that extended the left leg a lot more because I moved his cleat back about 60 or 70 mil. And combined with the cleat underneath the toe of the other shoe, he was, he was almost perfectly smooth. He's going, this is fantastic. We're done. I said, no, we're not done. Hmm. We're not quite right. And I, th- and I thought, there's got to be a way. Now, bear in mind, his whole right side is smaller. Even his pelvis is smaller. Now, he had a Rolls saddle on. And as you know, Rolls is a, a saddle of very robust construction with solid steel rails. So an 18-inch long pedal spinner, hardened steel pedal spinner. So I put that through the seat and I leant on it like, like no tomorrow until I bent the seat over towards the right side. Mm-hmm. So they jacked it up on the left and lowered it on the right, which enabled me to drop the seat another five mil. Then he was as smooth as you and me. He looked weird, smooth. Yeah. He's saying, this is fantastic. I feel like an electric motor, but he's still twisting like massively forward in his right torso. Going, what are we going to do about the bars? I said, I don't know. You've worn me out. Come back next week. <laughs> so I thought about it during the week, even heated and tried to bend some various aluminium bars and total failure. Then I remembered Spinacci's had recently hit the market and I'd never sold a pair, but I had a pair in the shop. That particular day, I was coming back from a training ride in Centennial Park, and I saw a guy with a pair of Spinaches on a bike. First person I'd seen with a pair on in the flesh. I thought, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to put one of those behind the bar. So I rigged up a Spinachi bar behind his right side handlebar, so it came back about 100 mil, so he could ride with the left hand on top of the bar and the right hand back about 100 mil. That squared up his pelvis. Mm -hmm. Now, I got a lot of business out of that indirectly because... This guy's a pretty determined guy, Nick, and he, he kept riding the bunch he'd been riding with for years and years. I started to get this influx of riders from Northside, Sydney, saying, I'd say, what I always used to say to people, what brings you here? And they'd say, Nick, Nick, um, sorry, no, I'm saying his name. I shouldn't say his name. I'll call him Nick, which was his name. I won't give his last name, no. <laughs> I'd say, I'd say, why? What, what did he tell you? And he said, no, he didn't say anything. But he's been the last one up to the top of the hill for 15 years. Now he's beating me, and I'm able-bodied, so I asked him to tell me to see you. Nice. Yeah, so that was, that was, that was, I learned, and that made me realize there is literally you can fix just about, you can come up with a solution to just about anything if you think long enough and hard enough. Mm-hmm. And in those days, I was right into physical solutions like changing equipment or modifying equipment to sort out those symmetries. I've found over the years, as I've learned more and discovered more, it's far more effective to change the body rather than the bike. Mm. These days, I typically spend two hours getting people's nervous systems firing properly, and then when I get them on the bike, the fitting process is dead easy because I'm not having to work around the client's shortcomings in the main. I'm just trying to sort out their position. Hmm. So the time spent off the bike makes the time spent on the bike much yeah. much easier for me to do and much less so for the rider, necessary for the rider. Hmm. More stuff you can fix with the rider before they get on the bike, the easier the actual bike fitting is. And That's why you and I got to get together about this LVM stuff at some stage. Yeah, definitely. Well, I don't know if Australia's ever going to let uh, other people from the rest of the world back onto your island because you guys are doing pretty pretty good right now in the era of COVID, I think. Oh, but no, people are still welcome, but they've got to have a 14-day mandatory quarantine on the way in. Right. And you're taken by police escort from the airport to a hotel. That's how seriously they take it. Yeah, yeah. And then you just have to stay in the hotel room and eat eat yeah, service for 14 days food's, food's delivered yeah, yeah. not allowed to wow. out unless you get sick you're checked on daily you know just make sure you're not sick yeah. after 14 days you go about your business 
Oof. But see, we, we've, yeah, we've, we've handled it well as a nation, mm-hmm. probably because it got serious early. That the, here, they, the, we've got a state, you know, Victoria, which is what, probably a f- population of 5 million people. They're panicking because they get nine, nine new cases in a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's what they, they, they they're, they're that serious they close the borders when it, it's, they get those kind of numbers yeah. like where I'm in there hasn't been a single case for nearly six months now local transmission it was a case yesterday because the national capital and a diplomat came back into the country and he tested positive mm. that's one case in a city of 500,000 he's an outsider anyway yeah he's not a local yeah interesting so life is pretty normal yeah I think it's the only the only the only constraint currently is restaurants, cafes, pubs, etc. Only allowed to have fifty percent of their normal carrying capacity. All right, so where are we up to? Uh, I think we're down to the last question, Steve. I just wanted to know, kind of, what your overview of. We've touched on this a bit, but I'd like to know what your overview of the state of bike fitting is worldwide. I mean, I know we've spoken a bit about the fact that many certifications are not. There's no indication of a level of the fitter, um, and I wanted to mention. Uh, on this point, actually, one resource for people. I'll get this question a lot. I'm sure you do too. But there is a website called the IBFI, or International Bike Fitting Institute. And I'll put a link to this in the show notes. But the web address is actually ibfi-certification.com. And it's, it's a resource where someone who is a looking for a bike fitter can go and find some information. They're objectively trying to be objectively neutral and rate fitters based on the amount of experience and training they have of course that's a pretty holy mess and okay fantastic. just just to uh, just to put a sobering note there yep i'm i'm uh, and i've got a barrier to push here and a bit of declaring interest i'm on the steering committee of ibfi mm-hmm. you know the thing is it's not a perfect system there's some changes afoot that have been slow to happen because of of um, covid but many people have played the system because IBFI gives you points depending on this training or that training course you've done. Mm-hmm. Now, and it has, and because it's you know you've got to start somewhere, and it's an attempt to to get some objective quantification of fitter quality. But some people have gained the system by doing repeated basic courses and getting a points allocation to pump up their ranking. Mm-hmm. So there's some changes afoot. There'll be no longer points given for certifications. It'll be a more practical test, and we're hoping to work towards something where you cannot be make the highest ranking without being uh, sort of uh, how can I put it acclaimed by your peers as that. Well, you'll have to you'll have to come to an AGM in whatever country and give a f- fitting in front of an audience of your peers, and they will judge your mm. quality of work. And like, it'll be like giving a thesis, but in practical size. Mm-hmm. You'll give your dissertation both in a physical sense and an oral sense, answer questions, and your peers will decide whether you'll reach that level or not. Interesting. But that's that's someday down way down the track. But that's what we're working towards. Okay. There's another thing that's happening with IBFI too, so I'm I'm pushing that barrow. There will be a website coming up soon called bikefittersupply.com where a lot of small-time fitters who can't get access to trade pricing will be able to get access to trade pricing. Mm. Okay. So they'll have, to, they'll, they'll have to validate who they are and what they do, but they'll be able to get access to trade pricing. Now, it's not up and running yet, but it will be. You know, I don't have any barrier to push there. It's not my website, and I won't be. I'll probably have some stock on it because I sell fittings too, but it's not my website. So, but okay. just for those who are struggling to get supply of stuff because they're small time and yeah. they don't have a shop front or whatever, there is a solution coming. Cool. Okay. That'll be a great resource. 
So oh, then, so where are we up to? Well, do you have a comment or additional comments on the state of bike fitting uh, on the whole? I mean, it's 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 exploded in the last fifteen years. I mean, <clears> we certainly have a lot more bike fitters now than we did two decades okay, ago. Okay. Well, well, look, I'll, I'll give your your listeners clint hints of how to find a good bike fitter. Mm, wonderful. And, and and you can you can take my views as a as a well, I'll become obvious. Okay, if you're looking for a decent bike fitting and you've got various people to choose from, firstly, don't even look at the people who advertise their brand of certification more than they advertise their own expertise. So if someone is, oh, I've got this certification, that certification, 10 other certifications, mm-hmm. and they tell you nothing about their client satisfaction rate or their, their own expertise and experience, look elsewhere. Once you've narrowed down the number, only patronise people who have a, offer a money back if not happy guarantee Mm. and I'll I'll tell you why that's important because it's probably the best decision I ever made in the early days when I was sort of feeling around I had I was trying to develop a feel for what I was doing but frankly did not have a lot of the detailed knowledge I now possess but how can I objectively assess people because most people if if you you don't make them happy they don't want to come back and complain most people shy away from confrontation they just go elsewhere Mm. so I need need to give my clients an incentive to complain so I made it very, make it very clear to every client, I advertise this in writing. If you're unhappy with anything I've done, I will give you your money back. Now, frankly, most people don't want their money back. They want the job done. Mm-hmm. So if you don't get it right the first time, most people are happy to give you a second chance. Now, I've, I, the lessons you learn through an unqualified money back and not happy guarantee are lessons you don't need to learn twice. And my view is any, any practice or belief that holds up empirically when you give your clients full control of your own financial well-being is likely to be valid. Mm. So that's how I've learned. Anything that holds, anything I say holds up through them. Anything I say that might strike people as controversial or unusual or a bit weird has held up through 35 years of that approach. Mm-hmm. And I encourage others to do the same as you do because it is a self-education tool without par. Now, the state of bike fitting generally, it's becoming more accepted simply because of the marketing muscle and money being thrown at it by the big corporates. But funnily enough, I get people coming in and saying, oh, I've had four bike fits and they're all rubbish and I don't believe in any of these systems. The reason I came to you is you don't advertise the system. Mm. And that's, that's sad. I, I don't, I'm not bagging all the guys out there under retool banner or BG fit banner or whatever. Some of them are trying very hard. Mm-hmm. What they've got to do is stop relying so much on technology and start relying on observation skills and assessment skills. Agreed. Agreed. I've had similar experiences. Clients come in and they oh, say, I've we had all, five we fits. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, the key message to any bike reader out there, everything you need to see is in front of you. It's called the, Everything you need to know is, well in, is right in front of you. It's called the client. Stop looking at the screen. Start looking at the client. Learn how to... Learn how to d- discern the quality of people's movement, not the quantity. Mm-hmm. All these systems are all based on quantity of movement, quantifying movement. Quantif- quantifying is relatively unimportant and in other than an individual sense. What matters is quality of movement. That's all important. Do we have anything else you want me to rattle on about? I think we have. Um, I think we've we've gone through our list, Steve. Thank Thanks you. very much for the opportunity, Colby. I hope yeah. I haven't offended too many of your listeners. And, mate, I wish you well for the future. And get over here sometime or I'll get to the States and we'll show you the latest stuff. That would be great. I'd really appreciate that. And if I come there, I'm definitely wearing glasses on every mountain bike ride. 
Yeah, well, Jerry was wearing glasses. He's wearing his little fashion glasses. Well. It, was, it was his own fault. He tried to pull a mono, mono on a footpath underneath a tree. We'd ridden over some really treacherous terrain. He'd stayed up. And we were on the footpath riding home. And yeah. he tried to pull a mono underneath a low-hanging tree with his little fashion glasses on. This twig went up underneath his glasses and right jammed into the socket of his eye. And put it on your podcast, scare people. <laughs> I, that's a good point, actually. It's a safety reminder. I wear protection is important. I mean, all this social media rubbish that I don't subscribe to, I guarantee it'll go viral. (laughs) Jerry will be the most famous bike fitter in the world. There you go. (laughs) Most infamous. (laughs) He can fit anyone. He survived this. He's got an iron eye. (laughs) Well, Jerry was saying that while the surgeon was getting it out of his eye, because what happened when he went to the hospital, you know know who took that photo? One of the nurses. Mm. Because what happened when, when we took him, when he got to the hospital... It was a Sunday, like low, low, you know, off-peak period. And so the, the nurse rang an ophthalmic surgeon and said, we've got this guy with a, a 7 mil diameter, 14 mil or 24 mil long stick in his eye. The guy's saying, his eyeball's punctured. And she said, no. And he said, I don't believe it. She said, well, it's true. He said, I don't believe it. I'm not coming in on, on a, on a on misapprehension. A yeah. She said, well, I'll send you. He said, send me a photo. So she sent in the photo and he rang her back and said, I'm coming straight in. And Jerry said, during the two hours that they got took to get it out of his eye, the guy was saying, I hope you're going to buy a lottery ticket, mate. Do you know how really lucky you are? I've been doing this for 20 odd years. You're the luckiest client I've ever had. Wow. There you go. Because no. Jerry, by this stage, is saying to me, oh, I think I can still fit me with one eye. I might lose depth of field, but I'll, you know, the other eye will make up for it. And you'll be fine, mate. Oh, he wouldn't take his hand away from his eye when it happened. I said, take your hand away. And yet his eye jammed closed. And so there was no fluid coming out. Your eyeball's safe. Let's hope you haven't scratched your corner. Yep. Hi there, peoples. Another episode has been completed, and hopefully you enjoyed my conversation with Steve Hogg. You're all smart people, so I'm sure you figured out that Steve is quite an out-of-the-box thinker. He's also classically Australian, which to me means he's very matter-of-fact. And I don't know where he sits on the Australian scale of blunt and honest, but relative to most Americans, he will say it like it is. And that was something that struck me when I trained with him in a very direct and real way and I appreciated that about him and I think he sensed that by American standards I can be somewhat direct as well so we got along in that respect I also appreciate Steve's perspective because he's simultaneously very humble but also very well educated so he's open to being wrong he's willing to admit when he makes mistakes but he's also done his homework so if you're going to have a debate with him normally you got to have your acting gear I'm quite certain that you'll find the insights he gave us in this conversation to be well thought-provoking. And if you have questions about them, please reach out to me. Or you can also reach out to Steve. You'll find information on his website about how to contact him. We will put a link to his website in our show notes, of course. But it's just stevehogbikefitting.com. So you can go forth and make the search and find it. As always, if you want to reach out to me, you know what to do. Cycling in alignment at fasttalklabs.com. Thank you once again for listening. I have so much gratitude for my audience and 
the fact that this entire project is doing people good, that is the goal of all the work that I put into this and that my production team puts into it as well. So, onward. <laughs>